And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth, exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. 
Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully treated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of those things, and this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. And it came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitudes pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they, that, they which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, our text is taken from verses 16 and 17. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, our children need protection. They need love. They need care. And so as fathers and mothers, we take them in our arms, we hold them, and we draw them close, and we assure them of that love, that care, that protection. But our children realize, and we as parents realize, they need more than that. They need more than what we as parents are capable of providing them with. Our children, our young people, become aware of the fact that we as parents are not able to provide them with everything that they need. And they become aware of the fact that they need more. What is it that they need more? They need Jesus Christ. And they need Jesus Christ's saving work in their life. They need Jesus embracing them, holding them close, and giving them the assurance that their sins are forgiven and that they have peace with him. And that's the beautiful picture that we have presented here in this passage. Jesus takes the little children in his arms and he lays his hands on them and he blesses them. That's the wonder that Jesus does for you and me by faith. Jesus with loving arms takes us into his protection. He cares for us. He provides us. He holds us close to him. And through the troubles, the struggles, the challenges of life, we're able to know his love and we experience the reality of his care and his provision of our needs. That love, that wonder is displayed not only through the sacrament of baptism, but is on display here in this passage. The Pharisees were proud. They felt as though their salvation and their loyalty to Jesus earned them something. Why was it that they were followers of Jesus? It was because of what they had done and what they had accomplished. Jesus now comes and Jesus says, no. Entrance into my kingdom 
has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your activity. And Jesus now takes these infants and asserts that of such is the kingdom of heaven. That rises, raises questions for us. Is a child a part of God's family already? Or does God only receive those into his family who are able to make a profession of faith that's credible? Does an infant have to wait to become a part of God's family until that day when he makes that credible confession? And if an infant is already included in God's covenant, are all the children of believing parents included? Are all the children in the world included? We look at those questions and we seek to answer them on the basis of this passage here in Luke 18. Children presented to Christ. Noting, first of all, that our children, as we confessed in the baptism form and as Kevin and Ashley asserted, are depraved by nature. But secondly, as they also asserted, we believe them to be sanctified by grace. And finally, called to Christ. Jesus here is speaking in this passage to those who trusted in themselves and believed that they could save themselves and that their salvation was dependent on self. They were boasting in their own righteousness and they were bragging in the fact that they earned a place in God's kingdom. And if asked, they would assert all the good things they had done to make themselves worthy. These men were looking down on others, as is evident from the parable that Jesus here speaks concerning the Pharisee. I thank God that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Jesus is addressing that pride, that self-righteousness that believes that my salvation and my loyalty to God is based on myself and what I've done. Jesus confronts it in a very startling manner. He takes little children, infants, and he says, these infants have a place in my kingdom. They've done nothing to make themselves deserving. These infants, these little ones who have not done any good works, they've done nothing that can be chalked up as pleasing to God, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now that was contrary to all of the claims of the Pharisees who insisted that entrance into the kingdom was on the basis of works, righteousness. Now how is it possible that these children have a place in the kingdom? It's important that we understand what Jesus here is talking about carefully. And as we present our children for baptism, we do so with this blessed assurance. Is Jesus stating that all babies that are born are innocent because they've not committed any sin yet? No, that's not what Jesus here is pointing out. Is Jesus saying that every baby that's ever been born is included in my kingdom? No, Jesus says of such. And later on, it's clarified as many as the Lord our God shall call. Important it is then that we first begin by looking at the nature of a child and our own natures as we're born into the midst of this world. The baptism form states that we are depraved by nature. And that's the first question that was answered this morning. Do we understand, do we believe that our children as they're born into this world are born with depravity and as such as depraved individuals they are corrupt and their corruption needs to be 
somehow addressed and dealt with. The Bible views our children, no different than us, as depraved by nature. When our children give in to sin, we have to tell them that that sin is inherent in their nature. Their natures are inclined to those sins, and therefore they have to turn away from that which is their own desires, and they need to walk in a manner that reflects that self-sacrifice and self-rebuke. Total depravity affects us and our children so that Within us, according to the scriptures and confessions, there remain only glimmerings of natural light. What is that getting at? The Bible says that every single Bible, every single baby that's ever born is conceived and born in sin. Psalm 51, verse 5. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So the Bible teaches that already... Little infants, when they're born, have within them that depraved nature. The Canons of Dort, reflecting the teaching of Scripture in the third and fourth head, Articles 3 and 4, teach this. Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, nor to dispose themselves to reformation. Article 4. There remain, however, in man since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, of the differences between good and evil, and discovers some regard for virtue, good order in society, and for maintaining an orderly external deportment. But so far is this light of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion that he's incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. Nay, further, this light, such as it is in man, in various ways renders wholly polluted, holds it in unrighteousness, and by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. That is, our children and our sin is such that our natures are corrupt. At issue is not the fact that we do bad things. At issue is the fact that we are sinful and we have that sinful nature within us. And we're so corrupt of ourselves that we can't do anything good. We can't make ourselves likable before God or do that which would earn something before God. We know the origin of that depravity. Adam and Eve sinned and by virtue of that sin cast the whole human race into that depravity it's a hereditary disease passed on from father to son throughout the generations and so though fallen man has lost then the image of god holiness righteousness and true knowledge he still retains his abilities to be a person a man he's still a personal being he still possesses a rational moral nature He's still capable of a relationship with God. But that relationship now, Jesus says, in John 8, verse 44, is such, ye of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. Those glimmerings of natural light that are evident yet in, in man, according to Romans 1 and the canons, are not sufficient to save, but to leave him without excuse. 
Now, the future of our children and we would be grim if that's where we left matters. Parents would grope and fumble about throughout the years trying to find direction, finding incentive to try to find hope as to how to train their children. But God does not leave us with that testimony. Ye shall surely die because of your depravity. Shining through is the truth of the gospel. And God comes to us with the wonder of Christ. I sent my own son who laid his life down for those who were incapable, those who were yet sinners, those who were enemies, those who could do nothing of themselves to rescue themselves from that dire circumstance and situation. And God determined that he would save to himself a people in the line of generations. He wouldn't just say parents, but he would then take his elect children and place them in the line of those parents in order that they might have a glorious hope concerning their children. The disciples here now are of a mind to put the children away. Jesus ought not be bothered with these children. Jesus has more important things to do. In their mind, the children had no place in the kingdom of God. Jesus corrects them. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. These children of believers, though by nature they're dead in sin, at the same time, by virtue of the promise, they have a life and they are new creatures in Jesus Christ. And as such then, they are of the kingdom of heaven. So on the one hand, they're sinners. They're responsible to God for their sin. But on the other hand, they're given to know a wonder of wonders. And as they grow up, they give evidence of the fact that there's turmoil within them. There's another principle that rules, and that is the principle of the life of Jesus Christ. And that principle of the life of Jesus Christ enables them to walk in obedience, to repent from their sins, and to pursue that desire to be those perfect men and women of God, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's the wonder that Jesus here is speaking of. Of ourselves, depraved, given over to sin. And we confess that concerning our children. Sobering, that truth is. It makes us realize as parents, our embrace, our training, our teaching isn't enough. Our children need Jesus. They need the loving embrace of a Savior who works in their heart a life that's from above. And that brings us to the second point, sanctified by grace. Not only do we confess concerning our children that they are depraved by nature, but we confess that God has worked a wonder in that they now are given the life of Jesus Christ. Suffer the little children to come to me, said Jesus. Forbid them not. Jesus here is speaking of little children. He's speaking of infants. They could not come on their own. The only possibility of their coming was believing parents brought them to Jesus. And literally the idea here is that these children are being carried, they're being brought to Jesus by believing parents. Parents who have laid hold on the promises of God. They've laid hold on the promises that God gave to Abraham concerning an everlasting covenant. And now, with those promises in mind that God has established his covenant with me and with my seed, they now bring their children to Jesus. 
And Jesus emphasizes these parents must not be turned away. These babies must not be turned away. This morning, Kevin and Ashley presented little Cullen to Christ. Jesus demands that of us as covenant parents, that we bring our children to Christ. Forbid it not. God commands of us that we bring our children to receive the sacrament of baptism in Jesus Christ. And Jesus here is giving us the reason why this command comes to us. Because children have a place in God's glorious covenant and kingdom. Now the question we ask then, do all children? No. All children that are born in the world do not have a place in God's covenant or kingdom. God is specifically speaking here of the children of believers. And that was the promise from the very beginning. God came to Abraham and said, I will establish my covenant with you and with your seed. The next question we ask then is that all of our children then as believers. And again, the answer we know is no. Abraham did not experience that all of his children were embraced and brought into the glory of heavenly bliss, but it was as many as would be called. And so it is with the child of God. God states concerning the children of believers that they're sanctified, that they're holy. He says in Acts 2.39, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. To you your children, and then all that are far off, and then qualified by as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now God's people in the midst of this world then are called the church, the Israel of old. How is God able to say that about our children and grandchildren? How can we make that assert, assertion with regard to them, that we believe that our children are sanctified? When we know that not every Last one of them, necessarily, are included. God calls his people organically. And God calls his children as members of his church, the holy congregation of Jesus Christ. Believers in the Old Testament were identified as those who were the Old Testament Israel. God identifies his church as that which is. The Old Testament Israel now as it's the same. The church in the New Dispensation and Old Testament Israel are the recipients of the promises of God. At baptism, we confess that our baptized children are sanctified in Christ and very really members of God's covenant and God's kingdom. We even make this assertion in the prayer that we thank God that God has forgiven us and our children all our sins. We thank God that he's engrafted us in our children. Now the question is, how can we do this? How can we maintain these truths? When again, we know that it doesn't mean all of our children head for head. It doesn't mean that all are engrafted. It doesn't mean that at the moment of baptism, every single child that's baptized has all of their sins forgiven them. If that's not the case, shouldn't we change the wording of the form? Shouldn't we be more clear the answer is no, beloved. The baptism form is using the wording of Scripture with regard to the organism of God's people. 
As God looks at his church and as he looks at his people, he doesn't identify his church and his people by the dead branches. The picture that God uses again and again is that of a tree, a great vine that's growing up. Now included in that tree always are branches that are dead, that need to be pruned off. And God as the husbandman is constantly pruning off branches, but he's also grafting in other branches, bringing other believers in from outside of the realm of the covenant. And as God is busy in this work, this tree represents the spiritual church of Jesus Christ as she finds herself on earth. And she's viewed then according to her essence in Christ. Not viewed according to the dead branches, but viewed according to the fact of who she is in Christ. She's the body of Christ. She's growing out of Christ. Christ is her root. He's the source of her life. And all that are Israel are not Israel. There are some who are not. And yet they're called Israel. All who are in the church are not truly of the church, though they are yet identified as the church. And so we make a beautiful confession then concerning our children by God's grace. As they get older, God will separate those who are truly Israel from those who are not Israel, who are merely according to the flesh. And God will see too through discipline, through correction, through the various admonitions, that discernment and that separation. No one may draw the conclusion that all the children in the sphere of the church are spiritual children of the promise. At the same time, we view our children from the viewpoint of not the dead branches, but that vine, that tree of God that continues in our generations in God's faithfulness and in his mercy. And so we say yes to the questions of the baptism form because we're speaking here of those who are our children, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We're talking concerning those who are the true children of God among our children. And we're viewing our children then from the viewpoint of the gracious promise of God. God's promise to be a God to us and to our seed. And we view them as such until they give evidence themselves contrary. This was the perspective of the apostles of old. It's the perspective that God gives with regard to his church. God addresses the saints in Ephesus as beloved, knowing full well that not all of the individual members of the church are beloved of God. He views them as elect, even though not every single individual member was elect. He says that they have pure minds and pure hearts. Again, addressing them in that organic sense. And similarly, we look at the congregation, the church of Jesus Christ, not in a mixed sense, but we view them as beloved, called of God. Now this doesn't in any way remove the necessity to warn, the necessity to discipline. It rather makes it all the more urgent. We set before our children the command and the calling, love God, turn from sin, forsake the way of temptation and walk in a manner of obedience to God. And we don't forget the fact that our children are not just merely individuals that are randomly placed in the history of God's creation, but rather that Jehovah God in his marvelous goodness takes 
his elect children whom he's chosen from before the foundations of the world and he now places them in godly families in order that they might be trained and brought up, instructed in those families. God, according to his perfect plan, knows that our children have only one place where they would fit according to his design and he places them then in the organic line of believing parents and within the church. And God sees fit then to call his elect believing parents in order to use them now as instruments in his hand for the bringing forth and for the preservation of his church and his children. To teach them to glorify God. To teach them to put God first in their lives. And so there are special privileges. There are special treasures and responsibilities that God places upon us as we live in the midst of the wonder of God's covenant and God's faithfulness. God not asserting again that every single one of the children of believers are elect members of his kingdom, but God saying, of such is the kingdom of heaven, and qualifying it as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so we pray. We pray for our children before they're born. We pray for them after they're born. We set before them the reality of their sin. We admonish them when they walk contrary. We point them to Christ. And we direct them from early on to understand and to see the wonder of God's covenant faithfulness and of God's greatness. That Jehovah God has placed them in this place, in this home, in this family. And God has done so with a reason and for a purpose in order that he be praised and honored and that they learn to understand and know who they are, to whom they belong, and to whom they owe the whole of their lives. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven consists of the children of believers, children who are called by Jesus Christ and set in covenant homes in order that they might receive the instruction that they've been given. And God is pleased to work regeneration in their hearts, even in infancy, even sometimes in the womb, so that already they have a new life, a life that's from above, so that we believe that though they are depraved by nature, they are sanctified in Christ. And as such, we'll respond then to the admonition, the discipline. They will confess their sins. They will see their need for a Savior. And they do grow in their understanding and appreciation for the work of God's grace in their lives. We look at our children in terms of those who are the true seed of Abraham. And as such then, as covenant parents, we receive our children as gifts from the Lord. As God blesses us with the gift of conception, and as God blesses us with the gift of children, we don't take for granted the wonder and we don't just merely express thanksgiving for the physical character and aspect of it. We understand the spiritual, that Jehovah God has ordained that he would take his elect children and set them in homes and in families where they might be taught and reared in the fear and honor of his name. And that he privileges us as parents with that responsibility. It's daunting we can't do it of ourselves. But we also are taught this. The salvation of your children is not dependent on you. This is a wonder of God's grace. 
of such God's work is that which chooses and places and works salvation in their lives. But we're thankful. Look at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the mothers who gave birth expressed gratitude to God, abundant thanksgiving, often naming them names that reflected that gratitude and that thankfulness. Eve said, I have gotten a man from the Lord, Genesis 4.1. Leah said, now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, Genesis 39.35. Hannah said in 1 Samuel, my heart rejoiceth in the Lord because I rejoice in thy salvation. Now that's striking. Hannah is gifted with a child and she rejoices in that child as that child constitutes her salvation. God had taught the people in the Old Testament that their salvation was tied up in their seed. And they look forward then to the bringing forth of the covenant seed, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who would be the Savior of the church. And so God's children brought forth children looking forward to and anticipating that it could be that through them that salvation would come. Their promise was the promise of a Savior of the resurrection of dead and life everlasting. And they didn't see clearly all the elements of that promise yet because their vision was very limited. But they looked for their salvation through children whom God would provide who would give occasion to the coming of the Messiah. That's why God's law and God's commandments were so important and continue to be. Deuteronomy 4.10 Gather me the people together and I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live on the earth and that they may teach their children. That beautiful idea of parents teaching their children to fear God and keep his commandments and glorify him so that they with their children then could live forever before him. They could live before the face of God forever. God's covenant was an everlasting covenant. I will be a God to you and to your children forever. And so they taught their children with that consciousness. And what was true, beloved, of God's children that have gone before us is so much more the truth concerning today. We receive our children as gifts from the Lord. And we receive them with the awareness that God is placing them in our homes and in our families for a purpose, that he might be glorified in and through them. And that our responsibility then is to train them and teach them, lead them in the way everlasting so that they might grow up to deny self and to glorify their heavenly father. Our goal with respect to our children then is not chiefly focused on this life. It's not merely focused on success and being able to accomplish things here below. We with our children are concerned about God's covenant. The fact that Jehovah God has embraced us in love and he said, I will be a God unto you and your seed as an everlasting covenant. To dwell with God. To know fellowship with the living God. How is that possible when I'm a sinner of myself? Only in Jesus Christ. And the wonder of his shed blood on my behalf. And there's a thankfulness. There's a praise. There's an adoration. There's a worship that acknowledges that. God from the very beginning of time, using godly parents who diligently taught and trained and instructed their children as means to continue his covenant in their generations. 
And God doing so now with a view to Christ coming back again. We read, when Jesus comes back, verse 8, shall he find faith on the earth? And Jesus' assertion is, yes, I will. Because Jehovah God will preserve to himself a people in their generations as an everlasting covenant of faithfulness. And God will see too then that they, with their children, are showing forth that praise even when Jesus comes back again. What a privilege, beloved, as parents, as we receive these little ones, as we confess their depravity not only, but the wonder of their sanctification in Christ. As we are called now to teach them and to lead them to give all glory to God. And so as soon as our children are old enough to understand, we begin to teach them these things. We teach them their sin, their need to confess their sin. We set before them the reality of Christ and what Christ has done for them. We set before them the wonder of the gospel and the salvation that is in him alone. We teach them that it's the mercy of God alone that they're saved. It's nothing of themselves. We help them overcome all pride in their lives, pride by which they might think that they've done something, they've earned something, that they've made themselves worthy. No. It's all the wonder of God's grace. It's all on the basis of God's promise. I will be a God unto you and to your seed. It's nothing of self. We teach them the wonder of the gospel. Those who are in Christ have a life within them that will never die. That wonder has been implanted within them. And the struggle that they experience then with temptation is precisely because of that. Though they are depraved yet in their natures, they now have a life that's from above that will never die. And that life works sorrow, it works guilt, it works shame. It works confession of sin. Beloved, this doctrine does not encourage carelessness with our children. Rather the opposite. It causes us to stand before the living God with awe, with a high conception of God's glory and God's grace and God's goodness. It sets before us a high view of baptism and the wonder of what God has done in Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. It leads us to reverent praise, to thanksgiving, It directs us to give all glory, all praise to God. And it humbles us as parents. As we teach our children, as we lead them, we see their sin. We see often how that sin reflects our own sin. We see our stubbornness in them. We see our rebellion in them. And we're grieved by it. And we're humbled. We realize that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. And we realize that our children need more than just our loving embrace. They need more than us merely protecting and keeping them. They need Jesus to lay hold upon them, to take them into his embrace, to lay his hands on them and bless them. And that's the calling. Knowing what our children are lays a burden on us. As covenant parents... We know our need then to bring them to Christ. They need the wonder of God's grace in their lives. Foolishness is bound up in their hearts. They're not neutral. They're given to sin. 
And when we see those sins in them, we don't try to make excuses. We don't try to justify it. We see that sin in them, and we need to admonish. We need to correct. We don't assume that they're always right. We realize that they're sinners. They're going to throw tantrums, temper tantrums. They're not going to obey us when we demand it of them. They're a product of our own sinful nature. But we don't give up. We look to Christ. And we pray for God to break that stubbornness, for Christ to work the wonder of his grace in their lives. And we believe that as those who are under the promise, together with our children, we are new creatures in Christ. We have that new life that's in Jesus Christ. And though we can't make those children receptive, though we can't work in their hearts that they live in obedience to Christ, we can't work in them thankfulness and praise, we look to God who is able to work such a wonder because of such is the kingdom of Christ. And so, beloved, the infant, unable to do any good of itself, inclined to sin, is yet a subject of God's grace and God's salvation. And Jesus states, whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. That makes us ask questions sometimes. What does that mean? How can one of these little babies receive the kingdom? And beloved, we know the answer, don't we? They can't. How is it that Colin came to baptism? He didn't do anything this morning of himself. The babies can't walk. They can't talk. They can't do anything. So that God is emphasizing here the passive nature of our situation with regard to our salvation. We can't save ourselves. Just as that infant can't of itself come to Christ. They were brought. And God emphasizes then, so it is with you. How is it that you receive the kingdom? How is it that you know the wonder of salvation? It's all of grace. It's nothing you've done. It's nothing you've deserved. You can't boast because of your place in this church or because of your faithfulness with regard to your generations. The only possibility of salvation is this, that God takes hold of us and that God draws us to himself and that he brings us to Jesus Christ and to know the power of his spirit and the wonder of his grace in our lives. Christ here condemns the proud Pharisees not only, but he condemns you and me. We who chalk up all kinds of reasons why we think we deserve a place in God's kingdom, why we deserve God's goodness and God's mercy. Jesus says, no. You're members of my family by grace alone. You can't come of yourself. You didn't come of yourself. I drew you to myself. And we humbly then confess our inability. And we drink deeply from the well of God's grace, from the wonder of God's salvation that is freely given us in Jesus Christ. And then we shall be satisfied. And then we will be moved to glorify him in all things and to show that thankfulness by our bringing our children also to Christ to drink of that same fountain. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great things thou hast done for us. Strengthen us by faith. May we be thankful as parents. May we take up the responsibilities laid upon us with joy and with thankfulness. And may we do so giving all glory, all praise to thee, the God of our salvation, casting ourselves upon thee, knowing that while we are weak, Thou art strong, and Thou art able to do 
what we could never do. And we thank Thee for the wonder of grace by which Jesus Christ takes to Himself our little children and preserves and keeps them to all eternity. Amen.